It is hard to interrupt sweet times of worship like that, but we're going to have a little more extended worship on the backside of the sermon this morning. And I wanted to kind of quickly get into the word today so that we could respond to God's word through our worship today. So this weekend was uh, Foodless Feast as well as Feed My Starving Children mobile pack event that we hosted here and that's still going on into this afternoon. I hope that you had an opportunity to participate in that. I did not, I feel like I told Russ, I felt like a little bit of a poser wearing the shirt because I didn't sleep outside like our students did. But I wore it nonetheless. So, because I like good t-shirts. And because I wanted to remind you of, you know, of that act of service. And, you know, students every year, I'm so proud of you guys and the way you lead the charge and lead the way of pointing us towards caring for the needy around the world uh, through this foodless feast. And so, church, I want to remind you, opportunity to give to Feed My Starving Children Modable Pack and to Foodless Feast uh, to our students who are going to be distributing those charitable gifts out to different ministries around the world all of it aimed at really helping feed children who are in need. So we would love for you to participate in that. Let me pray for us, and then let's dive into God's word. So Lord, as we've made our way through the Gospel of John, we come now to this story in John 8, where your mercy is so richly displayed. And I pray today that as we look at it, what would be the case is that we would be reminded in a fresh way of how extraordinary your mercy is. And I would pray specifically for my friends who have felt that their sin is too big for your mercy, that they would see how big your mercy is. They wouldn't diminish it at all today, that they would see it on display in all its glory, that they would see your goodness. Here's the heart of the gospel, Lord Jesus. Mercy for sinners because of your righteousness, King Jesus. I pray today for those of us who perhaps have lost sight of how much mercy we have received from you and thereby fail to give it to others. We withhold forgiveness, we withhold mercy. Oh Lord, would you root that kind of heart out of us and make us like you, Jesus. Let your word have its way with us now. May it examine us so that we might be more like you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter eight. We're gonna look at the first 11 verses. They're actually the last verse of chapter seven, verse 53, and then all the way to verse 11 of chapter eight. So our mission as a church is to seek the good of the West Shore and beyond through deep truth, deep lives, and deep love for the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is central to us And we believe we bring that about in the world as we seek the good of the place where God has planted us. And so when I think about our mission, when I think about what does it look like for us to accomplish the thing that God has called us to, this mission that we have as a church, I think about purple fingerprints. You might think, why purple? I don't know why purple, but that's what comes into my head is purple fingerprints. Now here's why. Because when I think about what it means for us to seek the good of the West Shore for the glory of Christ, I don't think so much about what happens here on Sunday morning. Think a little bit about that. But I think mostly about what happens when you leave this place. I think about what happens when you go to your work and into your neighborhoods. I think about what happens in your families. I think about our mission being accomplished because of who you are in your day-to-day lives when you leave this place. And that you would leave fingerprints of grace and mercy everywhere you go. 
So when I drive around our city, I look for purple fingerprints. Did you know that? I look for purple fingerprints everywhere. I, I can picture them all across our city. Wherever you have been, I can see the fingerprints. I think here is where Lauren told her coworker about Jesus and who he is. I think, hey, that, that's where Mark taught the boy that he fosters about patience and steadfast love. I think, oh, this is the store where Beth prayed with that clerk who was just having an awful day and just needed someone to care. I drive through that neighborhood and I think that's where Ken relentlessly and sacrificially served Carol through great sickness for years until the Lord called her home. Where I think, oh, here's, here's where Dave works and every day he serves so faithfully and does his job with such diligence and integrity that people see Jesus. I think this is the field where Sean coaches those kids and he's coached them with such wisdom and grace that it has delivered them from a lifetime in their performance trap and taught them to love who God is and how he made them and designed them. I think about purple fingerprints when I move across our city all the time. You may not believe it, but I can see them. And I hope you can begin to see them too. Because we will be the church God made us to be when those fingerprints are everywhere seeking the good of the West Shore so that Jesus gets glory through the sharing of the gospel, through acts of service and love. And often, those fingerprints look like fingerprints of mercy. They look like acts of great selfless mercy. And our story today in John chapter eight is about how extraordinary the mercy of God is in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. There is an impulse in religious people, and I don't mean religious negatively, I mean people who typically take up belief in religion, but there is an impulse among us, I would count myself among them, I'm a pastor, I'm probably a relatively religious person, right? There is an impulse among religious people that if it is not checked by a regular drenching in the presence of God with the reminder of how much mercy he has shown us, that causes us to move towards duty and self-righteousness and be little filled with love. I don't know exactly why that is, but there is something in the religious person that over time causes us to begin to believe in our own goodness and forget how much mercy God has shown us. And if that impulse is not checked by regular activity, rigorous activity of entering into the presence of God and saying, remind me how much mercy you have shown me, something in the soul begins to atrophy. And instead of loving and showing mercy, we become filled with self-righteousness. And we begin to become the kinds of people who don't draw people towards Jesus. We push them away from him, probably while thinking to ourselves, well, they were too bad for him to begin with. There's something in the impulses of religious people that does that. And my friends, how we need to be regularly reminded of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ that has come to us. Now the other side, the flip side of that coin, is that there are some who believe, and perhaps for a lifetime believe, that what they have done in their past could never be exceeded by the mercy of God. 
that whatever it is they have done, wherever they have been, who they have been, the choices they have made is too big. It's too much for God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And often what happens in those situations is that they turn into performance to try and make up for what they have done. Live their whole lives trying to outrun or outdo this thing in their past with enough good activity in the future that perhaps somehow it might outweigh what they've done. And what they find quite often is that no matter how much they do, they can never seem to let go of what they have done. It's never enough. It never seems to make up for that thing that they have done. And often what results is a cycle of addiction in their lives. The best case scenario, I'm not sure it's that good a scenario, is they do enough good for long enough that they become a religious person and begin to think to themselves, well, I guess now I'm good. And they put away the bad. The other scenario is usually lost in a cycle of addiction because no matter how much they do, they can't figure out how to get past it. My friends, I wanna say to both of us, both sides of that coin, do you know the remedy for that sickness? Do you know what it is? It is one, an extraordinary experience of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. An initial extraordinary experience of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And then a regular rehearsal of that mercy every day for the rest of our lives. An initial extraordinary experience of God's mercy in Jesus. It can be yours. It's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ, death to purchase sinners. Not to save righteous people. Not to make good people a little better. To make desperately lost sinners righteous by his blood. That's the remedy. It's the only remedy. So we come to the story in John 8 today. My prayer and my hope is that what you see is the extraordinary mercy of Jesus. And whether you are in need of an initial extraordinary experience of that mercy, my prayer has been that today would be the day that you taste it for the first time, that you see it, and that it, it dawns on you like the rising sun after years of darkness and night. And for those of us who recognize that we have begun to atrophy out of mercy and love and into self-righteousness and into duty, but very little delight in our king and what he's done, that today we would rehearse the mercy of God. And we'd be reminded how rich and deep and profound it is. Let's look at John 8 together. Begin by reading in chapter 7, verse 53, and then reading down through verse 11 in chapter 8. It says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the, law of, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So it's a regular occurrence in the Gospels that religious leaders will put a test in front of Jesus. If you've read the Bible before, you may recognize this. It happens all the time. They come to Jesus and they want to test him so that they can either dismiss him or try him accuse him of going against God's law. And this is another one of those moments where we have these religious leaders coming to test Jesus so that they might try and trap him. That's what we heard in verse six. They might try and trap him in an answer or in an action that will discredit him. And this is a pretty ingenious trap because it counts on Jesus, one, it counts on his disposition towards mercy, right? You recognize that? that they're assuming that he has an impulse towards mercy that's so big and so great that what he will probably say is, we should not kill this woman. And then they will have something to hold against him because in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we're told that this is the penalty for the crime that's been committed by this woman. So they're counting on his disposition towards mercy. See, if he says she should not be stoned, he will be out of line with Old Testament law. If he says to stone her, he will probably lose favor in the eyes of the people because he'll become just like one of them. And not only that, there's, a, there's sort of another little element to the trap. They were under Roman rule in Jerusalem and Jesus knew, as well as these leaders knew, that Rome as a government did not allow anyone to uh, exercise capital punishment except for themselves. So if Jesus is to say, yes, let's go forward with carrying out the law, then what will happen is the Roman authorities may very well come down. So it's a pretty ingenious trap, right? But Jesus meets the trap and responds to it with profound wisdom that overflows with mercy. And so today I want to show you four elements of the mercy of Jesus that are on display here that are so rich so that we might rehearse it together and experience it together. The first aspect of Jesus' mercy that we see that's so profound here is that Jesus' mercy is for real sin. Jesus' mercy is for real sin. There's a couple of things that I mean by that when I say that. Jesus' concluding words are deeply important. What are the last words that he says to the woman? He says, go and sin no more. Jesus is not pretending as if this woman has done nothing wrong. He's not pretending as if sin is not a real thing. In fact, he's assuming that the display of mercy shown to her will actually be the remedy for her sin. That it will be the thing that draws her out of sin and into righteousness. But here's the thing to understand about mercy is that mercy is only needed if sin is real. Do you understand that? Mercy is only needed if sin is a real thing. If sin doesn't exist, if there's no such thing as violating the law of God, if there's no such thing as offending God with our actions, our thoughts, our words, if that doesn't exist, then mercy doesn't need to exist. God may very well be merciful, but we'd be in no need of that mercy because sin would not be a thing. Does everybody follow that? That's the first thing we have to understand. Now, 
The reason I point that out is because we live in a time where we tend to think of sin as not a real category. Now, I, I don't know that that's true within the church, but it's certainly true within the society that there are very few things that are identified actually as sin, Something that has offended God, displeases him, and is an act of rebellion against him and his authority over the entire creation. And the more we dismiss the categories of sin in our society, the less we understand mercy or the need for mercy. And here's the the rub of it. It seems like what we're going to do is be kinder to everyone by dismissing sin as a category and not calling what you do or you do or I do as sin, but all we've really done is create no need for mercy, and where there's no need for mercy, no mercy is given. And when no mercy is given, a society becomes harsh and dismissive and angry. You see, it's not a dismissal of sin that is actually loving. It's an identification of sin and then a flooding of mercy towards that sin that is loving. Does this make sense? It's a hugely important concept to get. Mercy is only needed if sin is a real thing and Jesus' mercy is extended towards real sin. Now, here's the other thing. Church, here's what Christians have a tendency to do, and I would argue that it's pretty understandable in light of our cultural situation, is that we have a tendency to sort of rail against sin, to try and say sin is a real thing, and to point it out. And you know what? That's a necessary argument in our day and age. I would say that's a necessary argument to make, that sin actually exists, is an argument we have to learn to be able to make with nuance. But sometimes, here's what we do, church, is that we stop short of remembering that the reason for pointing out that sin is a real thing and really exists is not just to point out that sin exists and is a real thing, it's to get to mercy. We identify sin so that they may be moved towards mercy, not just simply to accept that sin exists as a real category. Yes? Anytime we stop short in our acknowledgement of sin, stop short of acknowledging that the point of of identifying it is to move towards mercy. We stop short of the heart of Jesus. Now, so mercy is only needed, it's only necessary if sin is real. Now, here's the other thing within the walls of the church. When we start admitting our sin, that it's real, that it exists, perhaps in the church we don't deny that sin is an actual category. We don't deny that. But perhaps we get very used to hiding our sin and not admitting that it really exists. So functionally, we act as if sin isn't a real category. But when we start admitting our sin, that's when we'll start experiencing the mercy of Jesus. You can't experience mercy and thereby become merciful until you admit your sin. This is not complex. This begins with confession to the Lord, which by the way, is the most important habit to begin an understanding of the need for confession to the Lord. One of the things Amanda and I are trying to coach our children in is when they've done something wrong is not just to come and immediately apologize to their sibling or whoever it is that they've wronged, but to say, take a minute with the Lord because he's ultimately the one that you need to be right with. right? And so we, we, we wanna coach their hearts towards an understanding that when we sin, it's God we've offended first and most. And so we begin with confession to him. But secondarily, we, we confess to one another. When sin, this is what James chapter 5, verse 16 talks about when it says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The idea is that, that restoration 
comes when God's people confess their sins to one another and pray with one another. That because the idea is that when you confess your sin among the people of God who know how deeply entrenched in mercy they are and how deeply in need of mercy they are, what happens is you are brought into restoration by those people, not pushed out and rejected by those people. The church has to be a place where people can confess sin and then you are walked with in that towards righteousness. Now, that doesn't just look like saying, here's what I did, forgive me and let's not worry about it and then I'm just gonna keep doing it. But it looks like being honest and admitting, here's where I've sinned. The interesting thing to me is the longer you live in in sort of that religious impulse I was talking about, that side of the coin that I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon, the longer you live in that, here's the interesting thing to me. You usually don't have less sin in your life. You just get so used to thinking of yourself as good that you can't even fathom the idea of admitting that you have sinned. You become so married to the idea of your own righteousness and your own goodness that the very idea of saying to someone, hey, here's where I have messed up. You can't even fathom doing that any longer. It becomes harder and harder and harder. You atrophy out of and away from mercy and confession and into a sense of duty and self-righteousness and performance. I will put on a facade Right? There's, a, there's a great uh, Chris Stapleton song. Anybody like country music? Yeah, I, forgive me if you don't, you know. But there's, there's a great Chris Stapleton song where he talks about that his marriage is falling to pieces. That sounds like a country western song. But one of the most interesting things to me, I have no idea what he believes or, or what he thinks, but one of the most interesting lines in the song is he says, we go to work, we go to church, we fake the perfect life. And I thought, Well, that's telling about what whoever wrote thinks about what people do in church. That this is the place where you put on the facade, you put on the pretty face, you put on your nice clothes and you show up. Look, the church is supposed to be just a group of people that are regularly giving and receiving mercy to one another because we're regularly confessing our sin to one another so that we might be restored out of our sin and into righteousness. Do you follow that, church family? We are committed to being that kind of church. We are committed to being that kind of church. Confession of sin in this place will be met with mercy. Self-righteousness will be met with great frustration on the part of your pastor and a lot harsher words. Your sin is not too big for Christ's mercy. One of the telling things about this story is that the sin that's chosen to be highlighted is not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary that the story that we're told, remember that John says there's all these stories that he could have told, but he doesn't tell all of them, right? And so here's this story about this woman caught in adultery. And that's a, a significant Issue. It's, a, it's a, one of the more destructive sins that can take place in a life. Sexual sin tends to be one of the more destructive categories of sin. Let me just let you in on a little secret. 
a lot of times we say this idea that all sin is equal, and I, I want to say yes to that in one sense and no to it in another sense. Yes, in the sense that all sin separates from God. There is no such thing as a small, insignificant sin because all sin is an offense against a holy God and thereby separates us from him and makes us in need of someone to save us. Yes? So in that sense, yes, all sin is equal. But in another sense, some sin is more destructive than other sins. Some sins wreck lives in ways that other sins don't. And it's important to recognize that that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you get what Paul is saying there? He's saying that there's a particular destructiveness to this kind of a sin, and I want you to understand it and flee from it because of how destructive it actually is. That's an important thing to understand. All sin separates us from God, but some sin is more destructive than other sin. But the sin that's on display here is not arbitrary. It's important, and it's of the more destructive kind. And the reason is this. Because as you look at Jesus' mercy towards this woman, what you're supposed to understand is if Jesus will forgive this with his great mercy, there's nothing he won't forgive that I have done. This may be your sin. He can forgive you as he has forgiven her. His mercy would find you and restoration will come. But whatever it is, it's not too big for the mercy of Jesus. That's part of the reason he's using this sin to help us see. The last thing to say in this first point is sometimes we think this, um, To believe your sin is too big for Christ's mercy. To believe it's too big for Christ's mercy. I know that it feels like you're lowering yourself. It feels like you're saying, who am I to get mercy from God? The thing I've done is too much. And it feels like you're being humble, but really what you're doing is you are not lowering yourself. You're diminishing Christ in his mercy. And you're raising yourself as if you somehow from among all humanity are the one who he could not have mercy towards. And all you've done is really diminish him. I want to say it with great gentleness, but I I want you to understand that's what's happening. You're not lowering yourself. You're diminishing his power and his mercy. And you really should stop doing that. Your sin is not too big. Here's the thing, particularly in the category of sexual sin, like in this category, you will continue to operate in your pattern of sin until you understand the mercy that is available to you. You'll never get out of that pattern, whether it be pornography or adultery or lust or whatever in this category, particularly in this realm of sexual sin. You'll never be free from it until you understand how great the mercy of God is that's available to you because it's mercy, it's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not duty and religiosity and strength of will. You will be free when you see mercy truly for what it is. Because as you see mercy, you understand and operate as a son or daughter and no longer a slave. And as you operate as a son or daughter, you take up the rights of a son and daughter and begin to live in the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
The second thing that we see about the mercy of Jesus here is not just that it's for real sin, but also that Jesus' mercy is timely. Jesus' mercy is incredibly timely. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean we have to wait until a sufficient, oh, sorry, here's what I do mean. (laughs) I mean that we don't have to wait until a sufficient amount of time has passed to get Jesus' mercy. I think that's how some of us think about Jesus' mercy. It's like, I'll get mercy if I'm sad for long enough, and then I'll get mercy. Or, you know, once I've kind of been done with this for a little while, whatever I've done, and I love about this story that in the most vulnerable moment, in the moment of her sin, this woman is met by the mercy of Jesus. It's the most timely mercy you could ever imagine receiving. Can you for a moment fathom how afraid you would be to be this woman? I'm quite sure she's certain she's going to die. She must have been scared out of her mind. Not just because she's been caught in the act and is dragged into the temple. Think about being dragged into the middle of this church service, half naked, in the middle of adultery, adulterous sin. Think about the vulnerability and the fear and the eyes. And you're among this, the temple is the place of the most religious, of the religious, and their gaze is upon her. She's been dragged there, surrounded by condemning eyes, But also, her fear would stem from the fact that the law condemns both her and the man that committed adultery with her, and yet where is the man? Nowhere to be found, which tells us something about the intent of these men who have dragged this woman into the temple. They're not concerned with righteousness and justice in the law. They're concerned to test Jesus and make a point. And they've taken this vulnerable woman and dragged her in front of a crowd of people to pass judgment on her. I'm quite sure she knows that she's about to die. And in that moment of fear and confusion where she clearly understands that she is a pawn in these men's game and that is not a safe place to be. In the moment of her greatest vulnerability, the mercy of Jesus shelters her. It becomes a hedge over her and around her that no one can penetrate. His mercy rescues her, and it's a timely mercy. Here's what I I want you to understand. When you're afraid to confess your sin, when you're afraid to confess your sin, remember that I know it feels scary, and the cost of it seems too great, the cost of whatever that confession would be, but remember that Jesus' mercy is timely, and it will come flooding in to that moment of confession. It will come flooding into that moment of being found out. If you will ask for it, it will come. It will not withhold itself. He won't wait and go, I'll give you mercy tomorrow. I'll give you mercy in a week. His mercy will flood the very moment of your vulnerability and fear and the moment that you are at death's door. It will come for you. His mercy is timely. I love what A.W. Tozer says here, writing about the mercy of God. He says, if we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood that God has, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. Do you understand what he's just said? He said, mercy is not a mood that God has, decides to be merciful, decides not to be merciful, Mercy is an attribute of his very person. And because he possesses it in perfect complement with his justice, 
in perfect complement with his holiness, his mercy never ceases to be. The question is, will we access it? Now here, let me, let me make a distinction because I think this is important. <clears throat> a little bit of a cough, sorry guys. Let me make a distinction here. It's important to remember this because some people think, okay, I'm gonna confess and then I'm gonna, and I expect God's mercy then to be timely and to come in. And then what happens is maybe there's some discipline that comes into our life. Maybe it's through brothers and sisters that need to bring discipline to us. Uh, maybe it's through a parent that needs to bring discipline to us. Maybe it's just through God's hand of discipline coming upon us in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes we think, well, see, I confess and mercy didn't, didn't meet me because what I got is discipline. But friends, I, I need you to understand there's a difference between discipline and condemnation. Discipline is always aimed at restoration. When you confess your sin in the church, it doesn't mean discipline won't come. It doesn't mean there's not a type of discipline that needs to be enacted in your life, but that discipline is always aimed at restoration. Right? That's what good parents do, yes? Good parents don't discipline to be heavy-handed. Good parents discipline out of love to correct the course. And that's what discipline is. And thereby, it's an act of what? Mercy. Good discipline aims at restoration and therefore is merciful. Condemnation aims at destruction. And that's the difference. Condemnation aims at destruction. Discipline aims at restoration. So I don't want you to be confused to think that I might cry out for mercy and God's timely mercy looks like discipline in my life. That is mercy. Church, do you see that? It is mercy. As long as it's aimed at restoration. The third thing we see about the mercy of Jesus here is that Jesus' mercy silences our accusers. Jesus' mercy silences our accusers. The mercy of Jesus doesn't mean those who accuse us aren't saying something that's accurate about what we've done. We recognize that, right? These men are saying something accurate about what this woman has done. There's no denying it. It has transpired, it was sinful. So it doesn't mean those accusations are false about what we've done, but here's what the mercy of Jesus does mean. It does mean that the attempt to say, because here's what people mean when they bring accusation, is they want to say that sin defines you and it defines your future. It defines who you are and it defines what will happen to you. That's what accusations are aimed at. And the mercy of Jesus silences those accusations because it says, when it floods into that space, it transforms us in such a way that it says, not only is that not their identity, it's also not their future. They are no longer defined by that thing that they have done because of what I have done for them. The obedience of Jesus is imparted to all who will call on him to remove their sin and to give mercy. Do you know that? One of the great rewards of the gospel is that we aren't just given eternal life in the presence of God. We couldn't have that if we weren't given righteousness because we couldn't be in God's presence. So we are gifted the righteousness of Jesus. His obedience counts for us. And so the obedience of Jesus is imparted to all those who call on him for mercy. 
And listen, the silencing of accusations doesn't just take place in this life, it takes place in the one to come. Because do you remember what Revelation chapter 12 says? Can I tell you this? This is a great and glorious day that is coming for us. In Revelation chapter 12, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Do you see what's gonna take place? You see, it's not just that people might accuse us of sin that we've committed in the past and that Jesus' mercy has a way of silencing that. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But at an ultimate level, an even more important level, do you know who Jesus silences with his mercy? The mercy purchased by the blood of the lamb. He silences the great accuser. The one who stands before God accusing us day and night over and over and over again. And Jesus' blood says, hush. Your words no longer define who they are. Do you know that he's saying accurate things about you and me? He doesn't need to make stuff up. He accuses us accurately. But what he misses is that the obedience of Jesus has been given to you and to me if we've believed in him. And therefore Jesus says, silence. And one day he will be silenced forever We are no longer defined by our sin. Who we are and what will be of us is no longer determined by it. So here's the interesting question to ask. Why does Jesus' response to the scribes and Pharisees work? Have you ever wondered that? Why does Jesus saying, he who is without sin cast the first stone, why does that work? Well, it could be because he's saying something really broad, like you have to be perfect in order to pass judgment on anyone. But of course, that seems a little bit untenable and it doesn't line up with what he's just said in chapter seven, verse 24, where he actually commands people to judge. He just says, judge with right judgment. Or in Matthew chapter seven, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, but then he goes on to define what that means by saying, you should absolutely help someone take the speck out of their own eye, but you should first take the what out of your own. Take the log out of your eye before you try and do it. In other words, he's saying, no, no, actually discerning and judging and helping one another in that way is is valid. It's something you should do, but you should do it rightly, right? So it doesn't seem that he's saying no one can ever judge unless they're perfect. It seems like he's saying something more specific than that, which is why it actually takes root and causes them to drop their stones and walk away because more likely what he's saying is something like what we find in Romans chapter two which tells us that if you judge someone for something you yourself are doing, that you're condemned by what you've said to them. You're saying you can't, you can't it's kind of like the log and the speck thing. You can't say to someone, stop doing this when you're doing it. Now, here's the interesting thing. If Jesus meant broadly that you just, you can't judge anyone unless you're perfect, all the Pharisees probably would have done is said, well, then you don't understand the law, Jesus, and they would have dismissed him, Right? But when he comes and he says, hey, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, what they know is he's accusing them of being guilty of the same thing that she's guilty of. Now, they're probably not, as Pharisees and scribes, they're probably not guilty of physical adultery. But what he's probably saying to them is this, 
I know that you were lying in wait for this woman to catch her in a trap and thereby, thereby you are as guilty of her sin as she is because you did nothing to prevent it and you set her up to walk in it. He's probably showing them, I know what your plans have been and what you did. Which is why they drop their stones and walk away because they recognize that they are not in a position to judge. And Jesus is calling them on it. So here's how Jesus silences our accusers. Jesus' mercy has two ways of silencing accusers. One, they may still talk, but we care less about what they say because we hear what he says about who we are and what our future is, like we just talked about. So accusers may still accuse, but we recognize that the weight of what they say about us no longer falls upon us. The second way he does it is that he has a way of showing accusers their own sin and moving them to stop talking. He will tend to do that. And the last thing about Jesus' mercy that we see here is that Jesus' mercy is the only sufficient mercy. Jesus' mercy is the only sufficient mercy. Mercy. Now let me, let me just say, friends, it's nice to receive mercy from other people, yes? It's good. It's, it's enjoyable. We're thankful for it. But the thing we need to understand is getting mercy from other people is not a sufficient mercy. The only mercy that's sufficient to meet us in our sin is the mercy of Jesus. Why is it in this story that Jesus could not just dismiss the scribes and Pharisees by pointing out their hypocrisy, but he can also say to the woman that she's not condemned. You see, the law still stands. She is still guilty of violating the law. And do you know who is able to throw a stone at her should he choose to? Jesus is. Because he is a righteous judge. If he wanted to, he would be within his rights to take her life for her violation of the law. Why is it that Jesus can not only dismiss the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites, but can also say to her, neither do I condemn you? Because that's the most important phrase in the entire story. Neither do I condemn you. Why can he say that? Because he knows that he is perfectly fulfilling the law. And as we said a moment ago, his obedience, he is imparting to her. He's giving us a taste of what's gonna happen through his cross. You say, oh, when I die, I will die as a perfect sacrifice. I will die as the one who's been perfectly obedient. And because of that, I can give my obedience and give my righteousness and the the benefit of it to those who would call on me by faith. This woman hasn't even called out for mercy and Jesus showers her with it. The reason Jesus has the only sufficient mercy to give is because Jesus is the only one who's ever fulfilled the law of God perfectly. No other religious leader and thereby no other religion has that to offer. No other person, no matter how kind and gracious, their mercy given to us, which is a good thing. The mercy of Jesus is the only sufficient mercy. The mercy of Jesus is the extraordinary, freely given, powerful, timely, accuser-silencing, given for great sin, mercy that we need. Have we reflected okay on the mercy of Jesus? Have we rehearsed it okay? Here's what I'd like to do. We're gonna worship a little bit together, but before we just start singing, I wanna just give us a moment to be quiet and reflect. So we're gonna, we're gonna just take a moment. Yeah, worship team, you guys can come on up.
We're just going to take a moment and we're just going to be quiet. We've saved ourselves plenty of time here at the end of our service together. Could I implore you to really treat the next 20 minutes as just time to be with the Lord? I, I want you to just quietly wait on the Lord. Here's the question. Where do you need mercy? Where do you need a heart for mercy? And then we're going to have time to pray and worship together. But let's just take a few moments to be quiet and let the Lord speak to us by the power of his spirit. Right? We've heard from his word. Now let's just hear from his spirit speaking to us internally for those who are followers of Jesus. Just ask that question. What do you, what do you want to say to me about your mercy today, Lord? What is it that you want to say to me about your mercy today? Would you ask him that question? Let's reflect quietly for a moment and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. But Just take a moment now. as you continue to pray, listen to the word of the Lord. In Exodus 34, as he was imparting the very law that revealed the nature of sin. This is what God said about himself. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made a way wherein the perfect holiness of God could be satisfied. Wherein sin was not overlooked or winked at, but dealt with. 
and still able to declare that you are merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Help us to see it today. As you receive our worship now, receive our prayers. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Church family, we're gonna have some time to worship the Lord. We also wanna make this a time for prayer. And I would just encourage you, our prayer team's gonna come up. You may just wanna pray right where you are, that's fine. You may just wanna sing right where you are, but I also wanna encourage you in two ways. If you know I am struggling to give mercy, just come and receive prayer. We want you to be free from that. We want you to be someone who can give mercy, overflow with it, just like Jesus. You might need some prayer for a little bit of a breakthrough, being able to do that. Perhaps you're that other side of the coin where you are having trouble believing that you could receive mercy, that mercy could actually be for you. Perhaps what you need is someone to pray that over you so that the Holy Spirit might come and break through in your thinking and in your heart to show you no. No preacher's words can make mercy break through to your heart, okay? That's a work of the Spirit. And so we'd love to pray for you today. We'd love to pray for you today that mercy would take hold and show you. It's for you. It's not just for others. And you can give mercy beyond what you could ever imagine. So let's stand together. Let's sing, come, be prayed for. Time of ministry.